0: Quack... Quack. Crack, again. Quack. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca. (laughs) Welcome back to Episode 4 of the Community Renewables Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag, and I'm here with energy chronicler, Craig Morris, our producer. Last week, we talked about Jünde, Germany's first bioenergy village. A small project, which has now closed, and its closure made no headlines. This week, we are talking about the opposite – Desert Tech, a giant project that made headlines before it had really gotten started, and has since almost disappeared. So we will be investigating whether we are all naturally biased towards big things and underestimate the cumulative potential of a lot of small efforts.
1: Right, and one of the arguments against small community efforts is that they can be more expensive than big industry projects. So wind power from your local single community turbine could cost more than wind power from a giant project on the coast. But let's take that comparison to its logical conclusion, which is what we're going to do in this episode. Why build wind at all in your country if a neighboring country simply has better wind conditions.
0: Should any solar at all be built in Germany when a solar panel in the tropics might generate 150% more electricity?
1: Exactly. So we will look for answers to that question in this episode. What are the economic arguments for and against big and small? And can big and small coexist or Should they?
0: And part of the answer will not be economic. As we discussed in previous episodes, the overriding question is, what is our vision of the future? What world do we want to live in? Our first guest today is Paul van Zoon. He is a Dutch engineer and he has been a driving force of the international energy transition for decades. One remarkable job he had started in 2009 and with a big vision. He became head of the Desert Tech Industrial Initiative, or in short DII, for the Sahara or MENA region. And MENA is an acronym for Middle East and North Africa. His latest book is entitled Energy Transition in the Desert. The Vision Has Already Become Reality. Well, we will check out that reality later, but before we listen to his story, there are some terms I would like to explain. First one is hydrogen. Hydrogen is a way of storing green electricity for the long term. So we might use batteries for the short term storage and make hydrogen from green electricity for power storage over several months. Also, he talks about central and distributed or decentralized energy systems. Centralized means a small number of large central power stations, while decentralization means a large number of small systems. But there are other differences too. Distributed means spread around the country, and small means that more companies can own systems. Only big firms can finance giant projects.
1: And let me take us back briefly to 2009. Desert Tech was a huge announcement that year, but very little happened. A lot of hype came about just because the project was big. And we were overlooking small things at the time. The energy sector only collected data for gensets smaller than one megawatt which is pretty small for power companies. So let me put that into perspective. A coal plant might have 600 megawatts. A nuclear plant can be twice as big. And even gas turbines, I mean, they come in a lot of different sizes, but they're rarely smaller than 20 megawatts. And so it makes sense for the energy sector not to count things smaller than one megawatt. And in 2009, the Pew Foundation published a study. Uh, It's an annual study called Who's Winning the Clean Energy Race? And they found that Germany had invested $4.3 billion in clean tech. But actually, Germany had invested $14 billion in solar alone that year. And Pew couldn't see these investments because they had used data from the energy sector. And the energy sector couldn't see things smaller than one megawatt. And so this data hadn't been collected at all. And so just to give you an idea of how big one megawatt is for solar, that's about 5,000 solar panels. Now, this situation has changed, but this is the way things were when Desertec was announced in 2009.
0: All right, so let's listen to Paul van Zoon telling us about Desertec.
2: Actually, the desert tech is really an idea, Mm -hmm. an idea that the deserts could uh, deliver energy, uh, emission free energy to their own people and to the world. Mm -hmm. A group of private persons, people founded a a desert tech foundation they managed to to get the attention of the industry of uh, uh, companies like Munich Re, Deutsche Bank, Siemens uh, and so on. Mm To uh, to realize this uh, this idea to 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 convert it into concrete projects in 2009 the industry said okay good idea uh, let's let's go for it let's uh, start with a, with an entity to to pave the way to do some studies and to to uh, to make sure that we can develop a market and that was called in those days desert tech in industry initiative mm-hmm. which is D, DII. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess the main takeaway there is that the DII is an industry, I'm going to say consortium, and Desert Tech was more of the um, initial people who developed the concept. That would be correct?
2: Well, the the concept was not not even developed by these people. The concept was developed by uh, working groups uh, under the guidance of Gerhard Knies Mm -hmm. and also with subsidy or support of the uh, Ministry of Economic Affairs and the DLR, See,
1: uh, in germany we, in germany the strategy initially involved uh, hydrogen as well not just electricity and i'm seeing a lot of that talk today not just in germany but france now has an initiative uh, the uk is working on you know green hydrogen so i guess are we coming back to the beginnings again and is desert tech uh you know working on high, green hydrogen now
2: uh, the, the, the pure desert tech uh, was concentrated on, on, on energy. These working groups with Mr. Knies, they, they, really, they talked about hydrogen and, and, and everything else. And, uh, but then they, uh, in, in the studies, they, 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 they focused on electricity and uh, later on bringing this electricity from North Africa to Europe. So many people understand this desert tech as uh, energy from the deserts for Europe mm-hmm. or for Germany.
1: Mm-hmm. And you've uh, always I, been critical of that.
2: Yes, I have always been critical uh, from almost from the very beginning because uh, I had not the feeling that you can uh, you can bring uh, a product on a market that is not yet uh, mature enough uh, to another market. Mm-hmm. It looks like a little bit like uh, colonialism. Mm-hmm. We had, of course, our first contacts in, in North African countries, and they really were, were puzzled, like, what are you doing? But countries like uh, Algeria and, and Tunisia and, and, and Egypt, they, they were really careful. They, they they saw this a little bit as a, uh, another way from Europe for their countries to take something from them.
1: Right, right, yeah. And you document that pretty well in your book where, um, you know, there, was, there were meetings in Europe where uh, decisions were made about uh, getting energy from uh, the desert in Africa. And then when you went to propose this idea to these countries, they kind of were like, you mean you came up with this idea without even talking to us? You're presenting this with like, you know, this is a done deal.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you can imagine uh, announcements 10 years ago, of big plans with all kind of big uh, wording uh, without any uh, backing or support mm-hmm. or uh, awareness of some of the governments
1: over there. Um, there's a picture of uh, like a board meeting, I guess. Um, and you've got a partner from China on board now. Uh, are they still on board with you?
2: Yeah, it is it, it, one of our main partners, uh, uh, it is this state state trade of china which is uh, one of the largest companies on earth by the way with right. 1.9 million uh, employees they, uh, they
1: 1.9 million employees yes wow
2: <laughs> yes they uh, joined dii as a shareholder in 2013 and they are still a shareholder and they are, have also had a very strong vision on uh, the, the, the role of uh, energy transport or electricity transport across borders and even across continents okay. and even across the globe, by mm-hmm. the way. Okay.
1: Yeah, because the, the I think a lot of people don't know about this, but there is a Chinese vision of a global power grid. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that part of uh, the cooperation?
2: Yes. The DII is, is, is a puzzle piece in a larger structure uh, that would then cover the globe for electrical power, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, also for hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, uh, the state grid of China has uh, worked out uh, models for cross-border uh, uh, transmission and tr- cross-continent transmission.
1: If, if I look back into the history of all of this, it seems that the timing was in a way both good and bad for desert tech there was this need around 2009 in the at the beginning of the financial crisis to say we need to really have an injection of funding from governments uh, to to get the economy going and this is exactly the kind of project we need because it's also good for the climate and you quote in, in fact claudia Kempfert, who in the meantime i guess you know this has become yeah. a huge proponent of uh, a completely different idea, which is uh, distributed energy. And we'll have yeah. her, in a, I'll also have an interview with her about this later. Yeah. Um, uh, but she was, a, she was really big on this idea at the time. Um, so that was good for Desert Tech, good timing. But then there was also the Arab Spring, which meant that there were revolutions in a lot of these countries. And of course, revolutions are not good for business investments. So was part of what happened just um, bad timing?
2: It was it was more uh, that was more taken by many people as a uh, what they saw a reason for problems with the project. Mm-hmm. But th- this project uh, actually, from my point of view, we had no problems at all because we were in study phase. Like uh, this, we were working on this big uh, report, Desert Power Twenty Fifty, which mm-hmm. was desk research. And, and these studies could really f- continue, no problem at all. From our point of view, from, a, from a, say from a management point of view, uh, this whole Arab Spring did not have any influence on our work.
1: Okay. I've always found this perspective to be interesting because if I think about uh, sort of this one vision of everybody getting their own renewable energy locally, uh, then there's kind of a focus on resiliency and local jobs and things like that. Um, and the argument for, let's say, the Chinese global grid, that kind of idea, is efficiency. So we would build the solar panels and wind turbines wherever in the world you have the best conditions, and then just, you know, transport the the energy either as electricity or green hydrogen into the other places that have less good resources. And the thing that I've always found interesting is that proponents of the sort of desert tech idea have always told me, look. You know, Germany already gets 80% plus of its um, energy from fossil fuels, much of which is imported. You know, even during the, the so-called uh, oil crises of the 70s, you know, we didn't run out of oil. It just—the the, the prices went up. So is there— An issue here in the long term with uh, depending on renewables from foreign countries, is it going to be pretty much the same? It'll basically work. We're already doing it uh, with fossil energy.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, I always like to uh, underline that the first priority should always be at the local uh, bottom-up energy supplies. Uh, And and that's not in in contradiction with the so-called desert, according Mm -hmm. to the big thing. The big thing uh, is, as you say correctly, is to create synergies uh, across uh, regions and countries and, and continents. And uh, if you can uh, decouple it from from grids, like with with hydrogen, if you can uh, ship it, for instance, then you you can uh, bring it into world markets like oil and gas. Mm-hmm. So you see that there is, will be a whole s- spectrum of uh, uh, possibilities to connect the, the the big sources of energy with the big demand centers. Mm-hmm. And and, and these the trade environments will keep, in principle, the, the, the same kind of geopolitical sensitivity and, and, and troubles. On the other hand, the, the, the very good thing with renewables is that uh, the, the sun does not uh, know about borders, national borders. So each country will have its sunshine and wind and, and uh, from time to time uh, hydro and so on.
1: There have been... People, I'm going to say they're supporters of Desert Tech, um, and I'm thinking specifically of the CEO, the former CEO of RWE. Uh, he talked about, you know, pineapples in Alaska. So the idea being that with the right subsidies, you could grow pineapples in Alaska as well. Uh, and he was criticizing uh, building solar in Germany uh, when there are much sunnier conditions elsewhere. And and my point in, in bringing this up, and it's in your book as well, my point in bringing this up is to say that there has been, I think on both sides, criticism of the other side, the, the distributed side and the centralized desert tech side saying, you know, we're doing the right thing. And, and you're taking a, a, a middle of the road approach yourself by saying, no, no, everybody gets to make their own energy, but we have more resources in the desert and that can be shared. Is, is that your position?
2: Yeah, more or less. But although I would never say we have more resources in the okay. desert. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The country, the countries over there, the, the yeah. people. The, yeah, uh,
1: that's the colonization uh, issue, right?
2: Ex- exactly. Exactly. It's not uh, centralized or decentralized. It is like the whole world is is go- coming from both sides.
1: Mm-hmm, right. And uh, yeah, we can't move it, fast enough at this point. So we're going to need decentral and central. Of course. Right. Yeah. There was a conflict that you describe in your book. Between feed-in tariffs in Germany and green certificates, can you sum up what that conflict was?
2: Well, it was not a conflict between uh, green certificates and uh, feed-in tariffs. Uh, actually, we are uh, a, a supporter of green of uh, feed-in tariffs as such. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of a market only. Yeah, uh, when, when the market start working, you don't need feed-in tariffs anymore. But we had a problem with uh, the fact that feed-in tariffs would not work or would not be supported by European uh, governments uh, in North Africa Mm -hmm. because these feed-in tariffs would be linked to physical uh, transport. We say make it virtual.
1: Okay, hold on a second because I, I didn't quite get the distinction between physical and virtual there.
2: Yeah, it's a uh, it, 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 once you you have a market for uh, green certificates, you you do not take okay, care. Okay, I'm the, going
0: uh, to interrupt uh, here and summarize this myself. Green certificates are like carbon trading. The idea behind carbon trading is that the planet doesn't care where carbon is emitted, so investments should flow to wherever they would reduce emissions the most. For instance. Maybe Germany has a billion euros to clean up its industry. But if it invested that billion in cleaning up the worst polluters worldwide, the emissions reductions might be much greater. So Germany would be credited with these foreign reductions if it made those investments abroad. Green certificates are a similar principle for renewable electricity. Germany could use the policy to reduce emissions abroad, say in Africa, and the impact on the planet is the same. But the impact on Germany is different, because it simply does matter where electricity is generated. If the green power Germany funds in Africa can't reach Germany, the Germans still need to generate electricity somehow.
1: Do the Germans get to continue making coal power if they're buying green certificates from Norway and uh, Morocco? Mm. So in
2: the total interconnected systems, the renewables will be more competitive and they will push then uh, okay. coal out. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in, 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 in about 10 years or 20 years, this, then it's only 2030 or 2040, that will lead then to a, a flow of uh, electrical power or maybe hydrogen or whatever. Uh, from North Africa and, and Middle East to Europe. Mm-hmm. And whether this is, uh, no one would care whether this is 10% or 20 or 30 mm-hmm. or 40 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, markets will take care of this, like
1: the oil markets. You, you also bring up um, Herman Scher's criticism of the project in your book. And I think this is something that's really been forgotten since he passed away in 2010. Um, he talked about oligopolies there was this notion that we would invest 400 billion euros it would be the biggest single you know block investment in history and i wonder how do you see that today if if we have a lot of these projects coming in and we have more and more concentration like we do in the oil sector today when renewables had or maybe still have the potential to be more of a mid-sized company driven sector Uh, Does that aspect concern you at all?
2: No, not at all. Because uh, actually, uh, coming back to Hermann Scheer, I talked to him in 2009, Mm -hmm. uh, even uh, shortly before he died. And and we, we agreed immediately on some of his criticism, which I also wrote in my book. Right. Uh, that uh, yeah, there was a lot of exaggeration and and, and uh, big stories and so on. He saw this as a, as a, a trick of the the big companies to destroy the, the uh, decentralized market in Germany and to create their own market. Well, uh, that that has never come up and has never happened, and I've never seen any sign of uh, of this uh, whatsoever. Mm, okay, I, I'm quite sure that Hermann here, as it would be there today would uh, have no problem at all with the way we have uh, tackled this in the last 10 years.
1: Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to touch on before we go?
2: It's very interesting to see how, for instance, countries like Saudi Arabia uh, are moving up, and and Egypt and also uh, Algeria now. They are maybe a little bit later, but they are really going very fast. And, uh, and also the international cooperation. It is not about not only about uh, like Germany and, and, and uh, that region or France. We mm-hmm. see now very much uh, uh, many countries in Europe, also the southern European countries that are very heavily involved, but also the Asian, like China, India, uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, they are very heavily involved in uh, the development of the markets in North Africa and Middle East.
1: All right, well, Paul Funzon thanks for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, thank you, Greg.
0: The Arab Spring didn't hold back Desert Tech because they were writing studies more than building things which only goes to show that the project was in the study phase, not rolling out.
1: Yeah, I also want to say something about colonialism. And if you have ever looked for a reason for people to study liberal arts and history, this is it. As Paul van Zoon explains, Desert Tech started off as a German idea, and German research institutes looked into it. They didn't work with Any African researchers in the initial efforts. They simply calculated how much solar energy the Sahara had and how much Germany could get. To understand this from the African perspective, we need to go back to the 1884 Berlin Conference. So Germany had come to colonialism rather late, so they invited Portugal, Spain, the UK, France, Denmark, and others, it was 14 countries in total to come to Berlin and draw up a map of who had colonized what. You know, the Germans love consensus, and they wanted one over the borders in Africa. And now here's the amazing part. Not only were no African countries represented at the meeting, but they were not even formally told what had been decided about them. The Europeans simply carved up Africa like it was theirs. And we don't learn about this history in Europe.
0: Right. I had not heard of this conference, and I am from Berlin.
1: Exactly. But Africans do know about this. And so Germany's best minds were unprepared here when they proposed the findings of studies about African solar resources, including what could be done with them, and were then met with charges of colonialism.
0: So our engineers need to study history. Right. In the end, desert attack didn't happen as such, but it sounds like these countries are discovering renewables on their own for themselves. But could they even export all that electricity to Europe?
1: Well, the power lines don't exist. Um, the connection between Spain and Morocco, which is the shortest, has a capacity of 1.4 gigawatts at present. Um, that's slightly larger than a big nuclear reactor. And so for Germany to get, say, 15% of its electricity from the Sahara, we might need 10 times that much, and it would have to pass through Spain and France.
0: Is it even possible to transport electricity that far from Morocco to Germany?
1: Uh, Yes, there are new power lines called HVDC, uh, which stands for High Voltage Direct Current. Um, Paul mentions that acronym, but we won't get into the technology here. My point is that the obstacles to desert tech are not technical. They are social and political.
0: And to see social and political barriers, it helps to have people in your team who studied politics, history, anthropology, sociology, and so on.
1: Right. And if the Benelux countries also want to have 15% of their electricity from the Sahara, those power lines might also run through Spain and France. And so the question is, will the Spanish and French public tolerate such massive power lines through their beautiful countrysides for the sake of Germany and Benelux? Or will Southern Europe tell Northern Europe, make your own renewable energy at home like everyone else and stop acting like you can use our lands?
0: And what about hydrogen? Can it really be sent through oil pipelines?
1: Well, I think Paul is more generally saying that you can use green electrons to make green molecules. Hydrogen is a gas at room temperature, so you would more easily use gas infrastructure, not oil. So Paul is kind of simplifying here. Uh, But in general, using molecules instead of electrons would allow us to have green energy in applications like Airplanes and ships on the oceans, where batteries quickly reach their limits.
0: On a policy note, he also supports feed and tariffs, only in the beginning, as he's saying. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, well, you hear this all the time. So I asked David Toke what he thought.
0: David is a reader in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Aberdeen in the U.K., The British tried green certificates, and David had written a lot about policy comparisons.
1: So, David, are green certificates a good policy for renewables?
3: Well, at the end of the day, they're a policy that's a lot better than nothing. Um, But uh, they don't give the developers long-term certainty of returns, because you don't know how much the green certificates are going to be worth in the the future. It really does depend on what the nature of the details of the system are, because they can vary from being reasonably useful systems to being completely useless systems. I mean, it really does. The devil is in the detail and that sort of thing.
0: So basically, David says green certificates don't provide investors with the kind of certainty they get from feed and tariffs.
1: Right. And that makes green certificates less bankable. So, Paul Zoon is viewing green certificates from the viewpoint of a global market and arguing that green certificates would leverage efficiencies. And David Toke views it from the banking perspective and says, there's more uncertainty and hence more risk from green certificates. So, I then asked him whether green certificates are a policy that would allow countries like Germany to just import renewables, maybe virtually, but continue to generate coal power at home.
3: It could be. I mean, my attitude would be that if this is achieving uh, eventually, well, eventually, hundred percent renewable energy, um, it doesn't really matter too much. I mean, I, I, I like local energy schemes because they're good things in themselves, but I I think I really want to see 100% renewable energy as the prime objective.
0: So he seems to agree with Paul that the only problem is in the midterm. In the long term, if green certificates get us to 100% renewables, he's happy. But Craig, I really wish you would have asked David what he means by community energy being good in itself.
1: Uh, Well, I do ask our next guest, Claudia Kempfert.
0: And Claudia will also comment on the question of whether market concentration is something to be worried about. Paul van Sohn didn't think so. So, who is Claudia Kempfert? She is an economic expert you would definitely come across if you work in the area of energy and environmental protection, at least in Germany. She heads the Energy, Transportation and Environment Department at the German Institute for Economic Research and she is also a professor of Energy, Economics and Sustainability at the Heritage School in Berlin. She recently published a book in German entitled Mondays for Future, demonstrating on Fridays, discussing on the weekend, from Mondays on tackling and implementing. So this is how her schedule to save the world looks like. Let's see what she would do on Mondays if she were Germany's chancellor.
1: In his book, uh, Paul von Zown quotes you from uh, back in twenty, uh, sorry, two thousand nine, uh, saying that Desertec at the time did two things right. It was a good idea in terms of injecting money and, and investments into. You know, green technologies, and in the wake of the financial crisis, it was you know going to also inject money back into the to the economy as well. So it killed two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you feel about that now. Sort of looking back on Desert Tech, how did Desert Tech do over the past decade?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, in general, I agree still with what we have said in 2009, that Desertec did two things uh, right, that we have to invest into renewables and there's a big cooperation or important cooperation between Europe and North Africa and also to to invest into solar energy. All this is good and all this is right. And um, also because uh, after the financial crisis, We invested into new innovative technologies and renewable energy and and solar energy is one important part of it. However, um, now, uh, more than 10 years later than this, I would not be that optimistic anymore as Mm -hmm. I was, as we have been in Mm -hmm. 2009, especially because um, I think pessimistic voices at that time were right in saying that, um, we we need to look at what can we do right now, also for um, the the energy transition at a local level and not concentrate so much on this central level that we have big projects um, in North Africa or Northern Europe or wherever and then import all the rest uh, from the German perspective to Germany, for example, or to Europe, but to do our homework at home and uh, do whatever we can for a decentralized energy system uh, at a local level. So at at this time, I would say, yes, Desertec is an important project, And it's good that we do it. um, But two things are important that, first of all, there needs to be an energy security option and also an energy um, supply option in North Africa to to produce the energy for the North African uh, country and for their own purposes. And second, just to look at then exports to, to Europe, for example. And the other thing is that we have to focus also on solar energy at a decentralized level and to focus more on this first and then look at these kind of big projects after it.
1: One of the things that he said about why Desert tech didn't move faster or hadn't you know didn't move faster over the past decade was that Europe in the in its sort of policies for renewable electricity it didn't want to offer feed-in tariffs for the power from you know outside of the eu in northern Africa and green certificates didn't really get going um, now the thing that I don't really understand about the concept of green certificates is if we just have those doesn't it allow let's say germany to just purchase its electricity from norway or morocco and then continue running coal power at home uh, and and not build renewables at home is there a danger expecting. of that okay
4: yeah, there is a danger of that, and this is why it's not has been not that successful in promoting renewable energy, especially because of this. And it's it's a danger that you just don't do the um, necessary transformation at home. You just buy green certificates, and that's it. And that's that's a potential danger, especially because we don't have this large amount of extra renewable energy um, around us in Northern Europe or in, in North Africa, and um, we have to transform our energy system at home. And that means going away from coal and increase the share of renewables at home. And that's, that's the most important issue.
1: Now, you're an economist, and the argument, I think, for all of these projects, these global projects, is economic efficiency. So the cheapest cost If the primary argument for centralized projects is low cost, what is the argument for more distributed renewable energy from the economic perspective?
4: Yeah, from the pure economic perspective, it's true that if you have a lot of solar energy and solar potential as low cost to produce the electricity or the energy in those areas like North Africa or Southern Europe, On the other hand, from the German perspective, we have to import the energy from there. And it could be electricity, you have to construct uh, long distance um, grids, and that's really expensive. On the other hand, it also uh, creates a lot of barriers. If we talk about, for example, hydrogen, which is produced in those areas, which is now a new hype in Germany to talk about hydrogen produced in North Africa from solar energy and imported to here, and that creates, again, a lot of um, transportation costs, including that producing hydrogen is quite expensive. So at the end, um, it's, it shows that the local decentralized energy system has lower costs in comparison to these big projects where you have a lot of transportation costs and other costs like political barriers, like other barriers which you have to overwhelm, and then um, it creates additional costs on that. So it's always um, a better idea, a more safe idea, and also an economic Um, reason has an economic reason to produce the energy there where you need it and that's that's a local solution
1: this focus on low cost is is microeconomic and there's a macroeconomic view as well which is you know it depends or it matters where the money is flowing Um, Mm. is is that an argument for distributed
4: yeah, it is. And it, indeed, it's a macroeconomic perspective that you have to take into account because from the business perspective, it might be that there's an investment into these kind of huge projects and it's it's low cost in that area. But on the other hand, you have a macroeconomic perspective where all the other costs needs to be included as well. And this is why it's not that cheap that you cannot always say, well, that's low cost only in North Africa Or only in Northern Europe that's for sure for these kind of projects, but you have to include all the other costs, and this is most often neglected Mm
1: -hmm. Have you heard of this Chinese global grid project? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that?
4: Well, it's a wishful wishful um, Thinking I would say a wishful dream um, Mm -hmm. that um, of course the world is connected and we all connected with one grid and everything is centralized It's a very center view And it's coming from the Chinese view of of, uh, centralizing everything, but um, from the global perspective it creates a lot of dangers and we see that in many crises as for example right now that it's always better to produce the energy where you are located so Mm -hmm. not to increase more more import dangers or uh, potential dangers because we are too dependent on imports but to really concentrate on the local level and produce everything you can at the local level and uh, think more uh, uh, whatever you can do here is better than uh, focusing so much on imports because it creates a lot of dangers if you look at for example not only terrorism but but other dangers which we see right now on a global level that there might be some interruptions of whatever reasons mm. you are immediately affected heavily and that should be avoided so it's always better it's more safe uh, to, to do whatever you can do on a local level. And energy is, is the best example here because we need the electricity here, we need we need the energy here, whatever is needed for a full, full supply of renewable energy. So we should not make us too dependent on imports, especially from this kind of big grids view uh, coming mm-hmm. from this Chinese, Chinese world.
1: Mm-hmm. Does the central idea lead to oligopolies? And, and if so, is that a big issue?
4: Yeah, it is. I mean, these kind of oligopolies we, we see in the fossil fuel market right now. We have all the difficulties with it, with higher prices and monopolistic market markets, uh, which are created because they want to control the prices. And um, that's for sure that these kind of central Central views or central systems uh, creates some monopolies at the end or oh. oligopolies. So, from the pure market perspective, it's always better to have as many companies as you can have. And in Germany, when we started with the feed-in tariff system 20 years ago, we created a, a lot of new competition into it because we supported also local companies, not only companies, but um, local alliances on, um, that that were also able to, to participate in this market. It's, it's always better to have more local, more decentralized companies than just one or few um, at a centralized level.
1: If I go back to 2009 when uh, Desert Tech is announced, I, I'm sitting on my couch in Freiburg, Germany, watching the nightly news, and, and there are there's this consortium on television. They're having a press conference announcing a memorandum of intent, okay, or <laughs> a memorandum of understanding or something. They haven't built anything yet, so they have agreed to start a pilot project, and they make it into the nightly news, okay. Yeah. And I am sitting there on my couch and I start jumping around the living room, yelling at my TV, because we are installing for the first time ever seven and a half gigawatts of largely (laughs) distributed solar. And we can't get on the news with that. And at least in in any positive way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If we were on the news back then about how much solar we were building, it was because it cost too much, right? Mm -hmm. So do you think maybe, I mean, I have this impression that we have a fascination for big things and we underestimate the potential of small things
4: yeah i would completely agree on this because it's exactly as you say i mean i remember also sitting in front of the television in 2009 seeing this huge project i was saying wow that's uh, that's that's a huge Hmm. a, a huge project of course but um indeed it was just an idea it was just, um, I mean, uh, an initiative. It's, it's good for, of course, for solar energy and also for Northern Africa, for the energy supply there. But I would completely agree that we underestimate the potentials we have at a local level and what we have reached already so far, also with the energy transition, for example, in Germany or all over the world, where we have people engaged into um, this kind of transformation and installing solar on their roofs. Or uh, everything related to it at that time for the Desert Tech project, there were huge energy companies involved, and they are always. They had a lot of power, also in the media to control their news. And with the people and the the, the cooperative solutions uh, and at a local level, uh, they have now power, and it's not that attractive to the media. But I would have completely agree that it should be the opposite.
1: Hmm. So my final question to you is. If you were uh, not only the chancellor of Germany, but let's say the the king or queen of Germany uh, or the dictator, (laughs) right, Uh, what would you do?
4: It's becoming worse and worse. It's
1: getting worse, yeah. What would you do? Uh, Well, maybe I was going to say outside of political considerations, but maybe you want to throw that in. How would you design future energy policy going forwards?
4: Yeah, well, we need a promotion system. So first of all, we need, especially if I now a chancellor, I would start to to do the coal phase out as soon as possible and increase the share of renewables, um, doubling the tempo of increasing the share of renewables um, in, in a short period of time. And I would not. I would um, immediately um, destroy the solar limit we have in Germany, for example, on the on the installations. I would um, also promote um, wind energy more than with also financial contribution systems or financial promotion systems for local areas, for uh, cities. And um, I also would uh, would promote new business models for future renewable energy. Uh, systems as a system integration, because we need wind, we need solar, we need biomass, everything connected in an intelligent way with smart grids and storage and all this. So a lot of flexible, a lot of dynamic, a lot of intelligent solutions necessary, I would immediately uh, promote this and um, also strengthen the the, uh, people cooperatives.
1: How would you do that?
4: i mean i would go back to to the to the advantages the uh, feed in tariff system the EEG had in um, i mean 15 years ago because we had a promotion system where we can control the feed in tariff and the costs around it this and all this auctioning the tendering system made it worse and uh, limit uh, the the increase of renewables um, drastically, And this is, uh, I mean, to increase, to, to find a clever way of, of promoting it with a feed-in tariff, including storage and system integration, but also to have market components into it. We could think of a PPA system purchase power agreements for those um, uh, windmills and, and all the others wanted to participate and, and find their own contracts with, uh, with the demand uh, um, side and so on. So I would, I would create a more uh, intelligent and sophisticated uh, system, but go back to the roots of the, of the success.
0: So Craig, do you often yell at your TV?
1: I have only done it once, and I haven't done it in 11 years. Um, Mostly these days, I yell at my computer.
0: (laughs) Okay, that makes me feel better. But let's come back to the question of market concentration. Is it generally risky to have big companies? Paul and Claudia don't agree. But honestly, I wasn't really convinced by her arguments. I mean that also in general.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you didn't find that part convincing. I mean, if we're going to have community renewables, we really need to make our case.
0: I listened closely, but I wasn't really convinced of her economic arguments for a decentralized energy provision. I mean, yes, she mentions transportation and production costs and political barriers. Yeah, but let's start with a question you asked both Paul and Claudia whether big companies are a problem.
1: Okay, well, first of all, I'm not trying to make anyone into good guys and bad guys.
0: Yeah, you have already said that we shouldn't expect renewables to always be seen as the good guys.
1: Right. Uh, Communities want to know whether the wind farm developer is from out of town. And completely foreign companies coming in to develop local resources, that's about as out of town as you can get. Um, But Paul said he had never seen big firms acting against community efforts. This is clearly not the case. I mean, I can take an example I learned of just this weekend. So my neighbor just finished her dissertation, and we're having a beer on the roof terrace. And she talked about how a state-owned Mexican energy provider had actually blocked community renewable efforts in Mexico so a giant project could be built. The community project was called YANZA, and the big project was Mareña. So let me just quote from her dissertation. Sustainable energy technology, as we currently conceive of it, risks furthering the exploitative logic of modern technology. In the case of wind power, in Tehuantepec in Mexico... Wind power is left in the thrall of finance capital, state biopolitics, and energopolitics.
0: That sounds like a fun read.
1: All 441 pages of it.
0: (gasps) All with such examples?
1: No, it focuses on two cases and derives conclusions from them.
0: And we'll put that in the show notes.
1: Uh, We can't put her dissertation in the show notes because as Mm. of this taping, she hasn't defended it yet, but Mm -hmm. we'll link to the books that she cites.
0: I ask myself when listening to Claudia, how can we find a value for local production for our cost-centered debate? Do we have to find a monetary value? Just like we try to find monetary values for ecosystem services, such as what is the price when our soil filters the water? So what is the value for local community feeling when people are working on a common project again? when people have the power over their own energy production. This reminds me also of the discussion on local food production, which has benefits for climate, for biodiversity, for health, for people.
1: Again, my argument is twofold. So first, we often just mean microeconomics when we say economics. We want low prices, but we don't talk about worker pay. We have to discuss and decide whether we want lower prices if they lead to worse working conditions. Lower prices are only good if your pay doesn't drop as quickly as the prices do. And so what people want is a better ratio between costs and income, and that's a macroeconomic perspective. So to just give a specific example, we want cheaper electricity But what if solar jobs are not well paid and workers are not unionized? And the second part of my arguments is that economics isn't everything. So we might want to pay more because of some perceived gain in quality of life. I think that's what you're getting at when you say find a price for soils. And all I'm saying is maybe we don't need a price for everything if we understand that the market exists within society So we live in society and we go to markets. We do not live in markets.
0: But I still want to have good arguments why we should want community renewables. And let me play devil's advocate here. If we could supply the world with energy from MENA, why should we spend troublesome time making laws and having cost debates about community energy?
1: Well, I mean, it's about the vision of the world you have. So do you want cheaper energy from bigger firms, but maybe fewer jobs locally and much less ability to decide what gets built where? Um, Do you want a small number of big firms that might be too big to fail and repeatedly have to be bailed out? Uh, Do you want wind turbines spread over the country or concentrated in one place? Do you want big firms telling small firms what to do? And again, to put this into concrete terms, do you want cheap prices from Walmart or Amazon? Or do you want small mom-and-pop shops as well? I can't answer these questions for other people, but that's what's at stake. Not just the climate, but the kind of world we want to live in.
0: Yeah, we really need this social discourse about a future vision without only looking at economics. And to come back to our initial question, this episode has also shown that big and small renewables are both needed. We cannot go too fast any longer in mitigating climate change, so we need both. But based on the story from Mexico, it seems that big and small renewables cannot easily coexist. Small community renewables need special protection – if you want it.
4: One, two, three, four.
0: You have been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency.
1: The AEE.
0: For the local Community Renewable Project LICO, the project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014 to 2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, (BBEM), German website Telepolis and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag.
1: Freitag for Future!
0: And our producer is Energy Transition Chronicler, Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. You can follow Craig on Twitter as ppchef, and I'm Freitag for Future.
1: Wait, what? You changed your Twitter handle?
0: (laughs) Yes, just this morning. (laughs) Oh
1: my God! I have reached my goal for this podcast!
0: (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. But this doesn't mean that we stop here. You'll have to get some new
1: goals, Craig. I guess so.
0: Anyway, the overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan. Tricolor! Check the show notes for links to their music.
1: Art is what makes us human.
0: So support your local artists after all this Corona business is over. Craig, what is the solution to last week's riddle?
1: Okay, so let's recap the riddle. You have a deck of cards and two people take turns removing either one, two, or three cards. And the winner is the one who picks up the last card or cards. And so what is the winning strategy?
0: And what is the solution?
1: Okay, so what you do is you make sure that you always leave a multiple of four cards when it's your turn. That way, for instance, when there are four left, whatever the other person takes, one, two, or three cards, you can remove all the rest of them.
0: Ah, that's tricky. (laughs) So this week, I'd like to tell the joke.
1: Okay, go for it.
0: Why did the hipster burn his mouth?
1: Why did the hipster burn his mouth?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I don't know. Is this going to be a joke about joints or something?
0: He drank the coffee before it was cool. (laughs)
1: Uh, Okay. Okay. Three three stars. Three stars.
4: (laughs) I won't tell you if it's out of five or ten.
0: (laughs) Okay. I got another hipster joke. Okay. Okay. How do hipsters measure their weight?
1: How do hipsters measure their weight on a scale?
0: In Instagrams.
1: Uh, okay, uh, okay,
0: another one, another one. How do you drown a hipster?
1: Uh, I don't know.
0: Throw him in the mainstream. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, I think three's enough. <laughs> That's
0: enough hipster jokes. Bye. See you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. I forgot to check whether this is still available actually. I checked. You (laughs) checked? So it's available? It's available. (laughs) Okay, so no more excuse. (laughs)